Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 20. Jeff, thank you for your devotion, for preparing our hearts and preparing us to gather at the table and hopefully, prayerfully, preparing us even for this, for studying God's Word together. As Jeff mentioned earlier, we do have a wedding today, which is why I have my it's wedding day tie on. Um, and I, I just mentioned it at this point because this is not what I prefer to do, meaning I'm going to have to preach this message and then leave the premises. I, I want to be present. I want to be accessible, especially dealing with difficult subjects like Revelation chapter 20. Um, but I've got a, an hour drive and a wedding that's coming up, so Cody and I will both be kind of darting from this place. But if you have questions, we're not afraid of questions. We'd love to talk with you about what's taught and what's going on here. So if there, there are questions at the end of this, please hold on to them, send them through email, or you can text me or something like that. I'd be glad to talk with you about it. But we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. Last week we looked at just three verses, verses 1 through 3, and it's my plan to get all the way through verse 10. We'll see how it goes. But let's begin reading in verse 4. So Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 4, John tells us, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for our time together centered around your word, whether it's being read or explained or sung. Lord, I thank you for this time where we can focus on your word and study it, try to puzzle out what it says, what it means, and and what we can take away from this. And so I pray that you would give us the Spirit, that you would help us by the Spirit to discern your word and to understand it and to apply it. And I pray also for those who are here that don't know you, that 
that don't have the Spirit. Father, I pray that today would be an exercise in you accomplishing your redeeming and saving purpose in the lives of those who need Christ. And so I pray that you would accomplish that uh, through the preaching of the gospel. Help me to proclaim the gospel clearly and faithfully. And I just pray that you would accomplish your purpose through the preaching and teaching of your word. Move among us. Have your way with us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. One of the realities that the Bible brings to the front of our consciousness is the fact that God made us to have a soul that will never die. We are more than just flesh and blood. We have an immortal soul. And because of this, there are a number of questions that occupy our minds. One of those questions is, what happens to our soul after we die? Now, theologically, we speak of death and the intermediate state. Maybe you've heard that phrase. Maybe you haven't. That's, what, that's the theological category that we're talking about, death and the intermediate state. And we talk about it as that interim between physical death and the resurrection of the body. Death, we understand from Scripture, is it's the enemy. It's our enemy. It comes for us all. The Apostle Paul calls it the last enemy. Death is that unwelcome intruder ushering, into, ushering us into something of the unknown. And humanity doesn't generally welcome death. But if we know our Bibles well, then we know as Christians that we have no need to fear it. For death actually doesn't usher us into the unknown. It ushers us into the very presence of God. When Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he was considering uh, the effect of his persecution, he was in prison at this particular time. He was, he was writing a letter to the church at, at Philippi, and, and he was torn between what was going to happen to him. He knew that there was a possibility that he would be released from prison, that his persecution would not end in his death, that he would be released and he would have freedom and be able to go on and, and, and continue to do ministry. But he also knew that there was a distinct possibility that he would give his life while in prison. And conscious of this debate, Paul says this, I am hard pressed between these two options, death and life. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. What he's saying there is, I would really love it if this was the end for me. And I could depart from this world, depart from this flesh, and be with Christ. And then he says this, for that is far better. He didn't look at death as this thing that was something that we should fear, that we should avoid at all costs. He understood that to live is Christ. If I live on, I'm going to serve Christ. But, but to die, that's actually gain. In another passage, Paul said, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. The idea is that the Lord is not here with us. He is in heaven. He is awaiting his return. And, and to be here, to be present in the body, is to be away from the Lord. And he says this, and I would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When you think of death as a believer in Christ, do you think in these terms, encouraged by the reality that death ushers us into his presence, not something to be feared? When we die, there is a separation of our material 
body from the immaterial core of our identity, our soul. The body is buried, but the soul lives on. And for the believer, it lives on in the presence of God, awaiting the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the body. God's word answers our longing for a glimpse of the things to come. It doesn't answer every question. It doesn't exhaustively answer everything, but it answers them sufficiently. It doesn't satiate our curiosity completely, but it gives us what we need to know to reassure our anxious hearts when we think of death. And that's what this passage is really doing for us. Our passage this morning gives us a glimpse of the things to come. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does give us a sufficient understanding to reassure our hearts that if the Lord tarries and death comes to claim us, we can be certain that we will be at home with the Lord. But even more than that, we will be taking part in His present reign. So let's look at that. Go back with me to verse 4. And let's think about our part in the reign of Christ as it's revealed in this vision. John says, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. John sees thrones. And and this is really important. It's important for us to understand the vantage point of this vision. Uh, There are times when we've seen the language change, where John is looking into heaven, or when John is in heaven looking down to earth. And in this particular case, it seems that John is once again looking into heaven. And the, the vantage point of this is really key to our interpretation. John is seeing something that is taking place in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realm. And it's the fact that he sees thrones and judges, that's what indicates that this is a vision of heaven. Now let me explain a little bit of this. We've been studying this for a long time. I don't expect you to remember all of the different instances of thrones, but thrones are mentioned 47 times in the Revelation. It's it's quite an extensive thing. It's, It's a prominent theme within the book. It's mentioned 47 times, and With only three exceptions, every one of those instances of thrones being mentioned, uh, they fall into one of two categories. It's either the throne of God that's being mentioned, which is in heaven, or it's the throne of the 24 elders who are also in heaven with God surrounding the throne, or it's something like this. Now, there are a few other mentions of thrones There's the mention of Satan's throne. Jesus mentions Satan's throne in chapter 2 and verse 13. And he talks about Satan's throne being on the earth. There's a a great distinction between the thrones in heaven and the thrones on earth. Satan's throne is on earth, he mentions as he writes his letter in chapter 2. And then twice we learn of the thrones of the beast. uh, And that's in chapter 13 and chapter 16. The throne of Satan and the throne of the beast are on earth. But every other mention of thrones puts them into that category of the heavenly realm, that spiritual realm. And the thrones that John sees here, they don't belong to the beast, they don't belong to Satan. These thrones are positioned in heaven. We're seeing them, he's seeing them in the context of that millennial reign, and they are occupied by those whom God has given authority to judge. Now, we might be tempted 
to say, well, this is just the, another reference to the 24 elders. And, and that's a fair assumption. You might do that. That's fine. But the context of this passage would lead me to conclude that these thrones are not just occupied by that indiscriminate 24 elders, but that it's occupied by the souls of the saints who have died during the millennial age, during the church age, or as, as Jeff mentioned earlier, during the age of the Spirit, right? Jesus promised, and you may think, well, that's, that's weird. Why would we be sitting on thrones? Why would we be judging? Why would we have that kind of authority? Jesus actually taught us that his disciples would have that kind of authority. He told his disciples that they would sit upon thrones. He used that language. And that they would get, be given authority to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, Jesus promised that those who conquered and who remained faithful to the end, that they would be allowed to sit upon his throne. Now, a throne implies a lot of things. A throne implies rule. It, it, it implies authority. Uh, kings sit upon thrones. But that king, within the context of the scriptures, also has the authority to judge. And that's what Jesus is telling these his disciples, that's what he's telling those who endure in faith through to the end, that we will be able to sit on his throne and to have some part in judgment. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul tells the church there, they're having all kinds of problems sorting out their issues. Brothers and sisters are going to war against one another, and, and they're going to secular authorities, and they're, they're trying to work out their problems uh, amongst people of the world. And, and Paul rebukes them, and he says, Do you not understand? Do you not know that you are going to judge the world? The saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, how are you not competent to try these trivial matters? And then he says this. He says, do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? And maybe you don't have a category in your thinking for as, as a believer in Christ, that you're going to take part in sitting on the throne of, God's, of Christ's authority and ruling and judging in these ways, but that's what the Scriptures are telling us. The implication is that Christians, saints, will be given authority to judge the world and even angels. Our role as co-heirs and co-judges will take place both in the spiritual as well as the physical realm. And this vision that we are seeing here in this passage is of a judgment, an authority that's been given to the people of God, and it's within that spiritual realm. Look at what John says in the next sentence. By, by the way, chapter 20, verse 4, is just a real long sentence. But he says, not only did he see those thrones, but he also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. So John is seeing a vision of heaven filled with souls, the souls of martyred saints. Now some will try to interpret this as physical persons because the word soul can be interpreted in that way. But I don't think that the context would lead in that direction at all. The verse very plainly says that these are the souls of those who had been beheaded. These are the souls of martyred saints. John is seeing souls without bodies. He is describing martyrs who lost their lives due to their faith, maybe by Roman persecution. 
Their bodies return to the dust of the earth, but their souls have been transferred to heaven to be with the Lord, just like what Paul referenced in those letters when he, when he wrote about it. In Revelation chapter 6, you might remember this. In Revelation 6, in verse 9 specifically, when, when the seals are being opened, we see one of those seals is opened, and, and John is allowed to see a group of souls beneath the altar. Do you remember this? And they, were, they had been slain for their testimony of the word of God and for their faithfulness to Christ. And they were crying out, how long must we wait until you vindicate our flesh, basically? How long until judgment is going to be poured out on those who took our lives? And when we see that vision, we don't understand those to be physical bodies. We understand those to be souls. The souls of saints who were killed for their faith. And I've been telling you all along that what we're seeing here is a recapitulation of the same story. And I think we're seeing a parallel vision to that right here. The souls in chapter 20 and verse 4 that we see that are in heaven awaiting final judgment are the souls, not the bodies, of saints who have gone to be with the Lord. But not all the, the people, the, the souls that he sees, this, not all of them were martyred. Look at the next half of the verse. And he says, And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. That's another reference to believers that we see throughout the book. And it says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. These are faithful Christians who died They refused to worship the beast. They refused to deny Christ. They refused to bear the marks of obedience to the beast. And they died with their faith and and, and their profession intact. And John is telling us in this language that they have been made alive in the spirit. They came to life and they are currently reigning with Christ, awaiting the final consummation of all things. Now when it says that they came to life and reigned with Christ, This means that these saints have come to life spiritually. Their souls are in heaven without their resurrected bodies, and even there, even now, are participating in something of the reign of Christ until he returns. That's the language that we see. This is a vision of spiritual life in the intermediate state. John is not trying to show that there are different classes of Christians in heaven. What he's doing is he's relating to us through this vision all of those who have died during the reign of Christ, whether their death was the result of natural causes or persecution or some other means. Their their souls are secure in the presence of God in heaven. That's the point of this particular vision. And you can just maybe think about that. Maybe you have loved ones that have gone to be with the Lord. Maybe you're you're closing in on the, the, the last days of your own life. Maybe, maybe there's been some loss in your life and you're concerned. Where, what happened to them? Where are they? Their bodies have gone into the ground, but if their hope was in Christ, their souls have been ushered into his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what this picture is all about. And that's generally comforting for us to know. But can you imagine what, how comforting it would have been for those early first century saints? When this letter was written and the, the church was being persecuted at every turn and their friends were literally being beheaded by Roman authorities or crucified by Roman authorities, they were losing their lives to the cruel treatment of the Romans. Some of them 
had lost their heads simply because they wouldn't offer incense to Caesar. And John is writing this letter to Christians who are fearful, who have seen persecution, who have lost loved ones. And John is saying, don't worry, it's worth it. Following Christ is worth it. Light and momentary affliction in this world doesn't compare to the glory that is to come. That doesn't wait, but begins at death. Those brothers and sisters who lost their lives because they refused to compromise their faith, they are seated on thrones of glory with Jesus even now. They may have given their lives, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To depart this life and be with Christ is far better. And our own loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord, they have never been more fully alive than they are right now, reigning with Christ in glory and awaiting the consummation of all things, when their souls will be ushered back into this physical realm with Christ and their bodies will be resurrected. And like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, our bodies and souls will be reunited in the air and we will ever be with the Lord. That's what those souls are awaiting right now. And that's a picture of the saints during this age that die. What about everyone else? Who dies? What happens to unbelievers who die apart from Christ? Well, John sees them in this vision as well. Look at verse 5. He says, Now the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now I believe that the, the idea of coming to life there is life in a spiritual sense. So where the souls of believers are made alive in the spirit and transferred into the presence of God, the souls of unbelievers don't enjoy that being made alive. It's a different type of thing. When John says they did not come to life, he means that their souls have not been transferred into the presence of God. And he doesn't tell us what happened to their souls. But the rest of the scriptures do give us some understanding of that one. And, and, and we'll get to that. We'll, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But first, let's talk about that phrase, this is the first resurrection. You see it right there at the end of verse 5? It's its own little sentence there. The first resurrection. Now this phrase has given Bible translators and scholars fits over the years. Uh, and, and some of you actually may see it in your Bible. Some of you, the first part of verse 5 is actually in parentheses. If you're holding an NIV or you, you have the Net Bible, uh, there's a whole bunch of them that, that would translate that first part of verse 5 as a parenthetical, right? Which means that the phrase, this is the first resurrection, should actually be the conclusion to verse 4. Um, and, and that's one of the ways that translators will handle this verse. Is like, where does it fit? It's clearly showing a contrast. A contrast between those who did come to life, who did not bear the mark of the beast, who were beheaded for their faith. The contrast between believers and the rest who did not come to life the rest of those who were dead who did not come to life, there's a, there's a contrast that's being seen here. And when you put a parenthesis around that verse, it helps to draw that contrast out even more. In that case, the vision of the thrones and the martyrs and other believers who came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, that's what's taken place and is described as this is the first resurrection. Verse 5 shows us what happened to everyone else. And when we read this passage in this way, it draws our attention to those contrasts. And I would say that we have to understand something of the contrast here in order to really understand this passage. 
Let me just give you a, a little rundown of all the contrasts we see. There's a contrast between the souls of believers and the souls of unbelievers. There's a contrast between the soul and the body. There's a contrast between spiritual life and physical life. There's a contrast between the first resurrection, and even though it's not written in here, there's a second resurrection, and those are different. Just like there's a contrast between the first death and the second death. It, it is with the, these contrasts in mind that I think this, this passage makes sense. This is the first resurrection is referring to the spiritual resurrection of the soul of believers when they die. Now some would insist that this should be understood as a bodily resurrection. And the implied second resurrection should also be understood as a bodily resurrection. But that doesn't make sense given the, the contrast. Let me give you one that I think just makes, makes it clear. In verse 6, look at verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. The second death has no power. Now, he explains what the second death is. If you look down in verse 14, he says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is after the judgment occurs. The great white throne judgment is occurring at this point. And it says, This is the second death, the lake of fire. So the second death is not physical. It's talking about something that is spiritual. A separation from God. A judgment for sin that occurs eternally. That's hell. That's our understanding. And that second death is a reference to something that is spiritual, primarily. And this first death, well, that's physical. That's the death we die when we close our eyes on this earth for the last time prior to Christ's coming again. The second death is something that is to come, and it's something that believers will not experience because over such, the second death has no power. But the first death comes for us all. The first death is understood to be a physical death where the body dies either through martyrdom or old age or some other means. And the second death does not refer to a second physical death. It refers to a different kind, a spiritual death, which unbelievers will experience when they suffer eternal separation from God on the day of judgment. In other words, the first death is physical. The second death is spiritual and the same interpretive paradigm is applied to the resurrection the first resurrection that John mentions here is a spiritual resurrection of the soul which makes sense of the fact that John sees the souls of fallen Christians into heaven but the second resurrection is when the bodies of those fallen Christians will be raised reunited with their souls upon the return of Christ now I know this is all very technical I understand that but it's important for us to see it in its context the souls that enjoy eternal life because of their faith in Jesus are being contrasted here with the rest of humanity whose souls remain dead during the reign of Christ. Now, the rest of the dead, that phrase, the rest of the dead, it's a reference to those who are unbelievers who die. Their souls are not raised to heaven, but remain in the place of the dead, which the Bible calls Sheol, you've probably, you're somewhat familiar with that phrase. It's a mysterious thing. It's this spiritual place where the souls go to await either final redemption for those who have put their hope in Christ or final judgment for those who have rejected the promises of God. 
In the Old Testament, Sheol is that place. It's talked about all the time. It's, there's euphemisms for it. The abode of the dead or Sheol. And it's that place where the body goes into the ground and then the soul goes to await whatever is going to be its fate determined by its trust in the Lord or its rejection of the Lord. And, and there's something interesting that happens in the New Covenant. With the coming of Christ, the souls of believers who die, they no longer go to that place of waiting. The souls of believers now are ushered directly into the presence of God. That's clearly taught throughout the New Testament. So Sheol is no longer this waiting place for us. We go to be with the Lord. But for the souls of unbelievers, our understanding is that their souls go back to this holding cell, this spiritual holding cell, awaiting the resurrection where they will face judgment. That's referred to as the second resurrection. And this will occur at the end of the symbolic 1,000 years, at the end of the, the church or spirit's age, right? When Christ returns. And it's at this point that unbelievers will experience resurrection, judgment, and the second death where they're separated from God forever. And it's this theological framework that I think best interprets this passage. One commentator summarized it this way. Those who belong to Christ die once, but rise twice, first spiritually and then physically. Whereas those who have rejected him rise once, but die twice, both physically and spiritually. And that's why John can say here that it's a blessing to be a part of the first resurrection. Because upon death, the soul is resurrected Raised to be with God in heaven, awaiting that final resurrection and the reunion of a resurrected and glorified body. And, and, but from the point of death, we will always be with the Lord. And the second death that is to come has no claim on us. It has no authority over us. And this means that the saints that have gone to be with the Lord over the last 2,000 years, they're already enjoying the blessings of being with Christ and they are reigning with him in the spiritual realm until he returns at the end of the age. Because when he returns, the thousand years will be over. And here's what all that means for us today. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. Those who die in the Lord will experience the first spiritual resurrection. We will be made alive in the Spirit, ushered into His presence, take part in the spiritual reign of Christ as we await His second coming and the full second resurrection of the body. But those who die apart from the Lord will not experience the first spiritual resurrection. Their souls will be kept in the spiritual place of the dead, awaiting the resurrection and the judgment that is to come. An eternal judgment. Now, the scriptures don't answer every question that floods our minds, especially about this particular subject, but it does make some things clear for us to see, and the point is to comfort the souls of God's people. Now, I had intended to go on and talk about the defeat of Satan, but we're not going to do that this morning. I'm just going to summarize this, and we're going to close with this. Revelation 20 is an abbreviated vision of the entire gospel age. That's what it is. That's what this chapter is. These 15 verses, it's an abbreviated vision of the entire age of the Spirit's power through the church on earth. And it shows how Christ is reigning in the heavenly realm, and we are taking part in that reigning with him. 
Whether through death we are ushered into his presence, or even as we live now and we spread the gospel message of Christ to the ends of the earth, we are taking part in the reign of Christ. Because remember, his gospel has free reign to the ends of the earth because our enemy has been limited in his ability to deceive the nations. And so we can understand the reign of Christ taking taking place presently in this physical realm, but also taking place in that spiritual realm. Now there's more to come. His reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords has already begun, but there is so much more to come. And I'll summarize with two points really quickly. This vision shows the church triumphant, reigning with Christ even now. Death is not an enemy to be feared, but an expected inconvenience to endure, leading to something far better. And then lastly, well, the second point would be this. We see in this section the defeat of Satan, and it is quick. There is no drawn-out battle. You know when you're watching a movie and you got the good guy and the bad guy, and, and everything builds up to this long 15-minute battle where is the good guy going to win? Is the bad guy going to get away? And then in the end, the good guy wins. There's nothing like that here. Satan amasses his army, and the fire of heaven falls, and it's over. We'll talk about that next week. But the vision shows us Satan's utter defeat. His days are truly numbered and his end is sure to come. And then the last thing I want to say to us. Death is coming. And the scriptures would have us understand that there is going to be a physical death followed by a spiritual death. Death comes for us all. It is coming. And the only way to be truly prepared is to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope that this passage holds out to us is a hope extended only to those whose hope is in Christ. The rest of the dead who don't experience that first resurrection, they will face the second death. To reject Christ in this life is to lose out on your opportunity for forgiveness and redemption and hope. Death is coming, and there's only one way to truly be prepared for it, and it's to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. The Apostle Paul, the same Apostle Paul that I mentioned earlier, who talked about not fearing death but seeing it as gain, he said this, the saying is trustworthy, and it deserves to be fully accepted that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And then he said this, and I am the chief of all of them. Jesus came to save those who were lost. Jesus came to free us from the fear of death and what is to come after. Jesus came to give his life to free us from the guilt and weight and burden of our sin. And we are, in fact, sinners, all of us. As Christians, we're not those who are proud of ourselves because we were wise enough to accept all of this and clean ourselves up to make God love us. No, no, no. We're we're wise enough in the Spirit to recognize that we can't do this on our own. And Christ is our only hope. And we don't come to him with all of our awards and and all of our accomplishments and all of our moralities. We come to him, I like to say it this way, we come to him with empty hands. Knowing that we need our dirty hands washed clean by his blood and knowing that he's the one that's going to give us what we need. And we need his forgiveness. We need the eternal life that he comes to bring. So come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. Turn from your sin, receive his forgiveness, and then you can welcome death. Not as a devastating enemy, but as a friend that ushers you into the blessing on the other side. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word.
And as challenging as it is at times, I thank you for revealing it to us and giving us the ability to understand it by your Spirit. And I do pray today that we would understand this and that it would comfort our souls. That we would see this picture that John saw and that it would accomplish its purpose. Not only to reveal truth to us and bring glory to the one who gave it, but also to comfort the hearts of those who truly face life and death every day. Father, help us to embrace gospel truth and biblical truth such that we don't see death necessarily as that enemy to be feared, but that we see it rightly. That we see it as an entry into the blessing that you have given to us through Christ. So help us to hope in him. Help us to turn from our sin and trust in him. And give us the comfort and peace that your word is intended to give. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.